verses 8 through 15. So last, last week we covered uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And it was a, uh, just an encouragement about evangelistic praying and praying for the lost and why, as a church, we pray for the lost. And so, you know, it was, uh, I started out that message asking the question, you know, what, what, are the, what are some priorities for the church? So you guys threw out some priorities for the church and things that church, the church should focus on. And one of them, as we talked about last week, was that we would pray for the lost, that God wishes that none should perish, but that all would come to the knowledge of the truth. And so it's important for a church, for us, for us to have a view of the world, those that are lost, the same way that God views the lost. And he's compassionate and he loves them. And if we are going to be a church, a New Testament church, like the church that Paul is encouraging in Ephesus, um, then we need, to, we, need to, we, we need to pray for the lost. We need, that needs to be a priority for us. And so that's what we talked about last week. And so just to keep that, con, that, that, that contextual view there, this is a letter written from the Apostle Paul to his protege, Timothy. And he's encouraging Timothy about how the church should function. What should be the priorities of the church? How should the church look? And how should the church function? And so with that in mind, we are, from my estimation, and many other uh, Bible teachers, and from other, uh, uh, not other, uh, uh, scholars, I'm not a scholar, but from people that are scholars, they would call this section of, uh, of Scripture, 2 Timothy uh, 8, 9 through 15, probably one of the single most controversial sections of Scripture. And so I get to cover that with you guys tonight. And you guys excited about that? I'm thrilled. <laughs> and so it's controversial for certain reasons, and we'll get into, we'll get into that. Uh, but I just want you to understand that the responsibility of a pastor is to bring answers, right? So some of these scriptures, you're gonna, you're, we're, we're going to throw them up on this screen, because that screen's not working tonight. But we're going to throw them up right there, and, you're gonna, and we're going to read them, and you're going to go, huh, it's interesting. And you're going to go, huh, that's interesting for different reasons. One of your reasons might be, I never read that before. That's in the Bible? And some of the reasons you go, huh, that's interesting, might be because you've been influenced by the culture, the cultural view of things, and you don't even realize it. And so my goal tonight is to bring clarity and understanding. So some of you, you may not agree with what I say tonight. And I'm prepared for it. It's okay. We don't have to always agree on everything. But... I believe what we're going to cover tonight is so very important, so very important. So, but before we get into that, now that I've set the stage and you guys are all ready to listen, have you ever, have you ever been around somebody who they're functioning in the wrong role? Like you just look at them, like for example, you know, if I was up here with the microphone next with the worship team and I'm singing, you guys would pick up very quickly that that's the wrong lane for me to run in. <laughs> that's, you know, I am not a singing pastor like Pastor Renee. I am a preaching pastor like Pastor Renee. I do not do specials on Sundays or Wednesdays or any day of the week because I, that's just not a gifting that I have. God has not gifted my life with singing ability. And so, but you can, you can, you can look at, you can look at people and you can see when they're out of place, they're out of function, they're out of their realm of, of gifting, and it's clear and it's noticeable. And, but whenever somebody is functioning in their God-given role, there's such beauty. 
you look at it and you think, look how, look, look, look at, look how beautiful God is, how amazing God is. And that person is functioning in the way that they should function. And they're, they're using their giftings the way they should use their giftings. And it's, it's a beautiful design, a beautiful design. And you know, roles are so important in life. Roles are very important in life. There is no area of life that are role-less. And you, and you know, so I thought about that question as I was preparing these notes. And it really is true. It's, it's just a true statement. Every area of life. So let's think about it. In work, th- 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 that's a big part of all of our lives. There are roles that people fit in. And because of those roles, there's responsibilities that they have. You look on sports teams. People have different roles. You got people that are bench warmers, but they have a role. And they're bench warmers because in case the starters get hurt, they need somebody to fill in that spot. Now, their role may not be as impactful as the starter. That's why they're a bench warmer. But the bench warmers have a role. And their responsibility is to stay ready. So sports teams, there's roles and responsibilities. There's, there's school, in school. In school, there's roles and responsibilities that people have as teachers. And, and the students, they have a role. When What's their role? To listen, to obey, to be quiet, to pay attention. And they have a responsibility to do that. That's the role and that's the responsibility. Friendships, our friendships, you know, all of our friendships, we all fall into different types of roles in that, in, in that friendships. Maybe some of your friendships, your role, what you, the role you fall into is more of the communicator. And your friend is not much of a communicator. So when you go out for coffee, you do most of the talking. And, you're, and your friend does most of the listening. But that's a role that you both fall in. But you both have a responsibility in the friendship to show value to each other. To recognize that God's given each other value. So the one who does most of the talking... They have to be careful that they don't undervalue their friend who is not a great communicator, doesn't talk as much. So you have to quit talking, close your mouth, and let them talk. And that speaks value. So we, it's roles and responsibilities. Marriage. There, there are no roleless marriages. Whether people want to create those or not and everything's just kind of neutral. No, everyone falls into a category of a function and a role in marriage. Um, raising children. And then lastly, our topic for tonight is church. There are roles and responsibilities that God has ordained in the church for the church to function a certain way. And one of the first, one of the first things that we look at as far as if, as we start looking into roles and responsibilities, and of course, this is the title of the message. You have the handout. It's roles and responsibilities. We're going to look at the roles and responsibilities for men and women in the church. In 1 Timothy 2, deals with this subject. But before we get to that, I want to go all the way back to Genesis, go all the way back to the created order and look at the roles and responsibilities for men and women and looking in Genesis and see how God established that. Now, if you, if you bear with me, we got to make some groundwork here before we get into the text of first Timothy chapter two. So let, let's, let's, let's read, uh, for Genesis one, 26 through 27. It says, then, then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man and in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So male and female are both what? They're both created in the image of God. 
both created in the image of God. And then as we go to Genesis 2, this is the continual, this is more of the details of the creation of woman. 2:15 through 25 says, And the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to do what? To work it. Men, if you don't like to work, you're not biblical. The very first man ever created was given a role and a responsibility. And that role was to be a worker. And his responsibility was to be diligent, to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The first is, you know, this is the first commandment. You guys all know the Ten Commandments, right? This is the first commandment that God ever gave to any human being was that commandment. And he gave it to Adam. The first person to ever hear a commandment from God was Adam. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for that man to be alone. And every man in here says, amen. I will make him a helper fit for him. And we're going to key in on that word helper. And we're going to key on on that phrase fit for him later on tonight. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock. This is a part of his job. All the livestock, to, to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so here you see the creation of man, the creation of woman and God created roles and responsibilities for both the man and the woman. And so what was the role for the man? To work. And, and also one of the roles for the man was to be the first one to hear a commandment of God. You know, think about that. First one to hear a commandment of God and his responsibility was to teach Eve that commandment. You know, there's nowhere else in Genesis where you see that God said, hey, Eve, by the way, don't eat of all the, don't, don't, you, you can eat of all the trees, but not that one tree. God never said that to her. Whose responsibility was it to take the commandment of God and teach it to, to his wife? It was Adam. He received the first commandment. He is the first man given a, a, a role of working, being a provider, and being a spiritual leader. And what, what was the role and responsibility of Eve? To be a helper that was fit for Adam. Fit for Adam. And her responsibility was to come alongside not, not, not behind in the shadows that in, in a place of no value, but to come alongside Adam and work together with him and support him in the role and responsibility that God had called him to walk in. It's the clear role. It's the clear role for men and for women. And it's in Genesis. And so if you want to know what's important, you know, you go to the beginning and what did God establish? If you want to know how does God view humanity? How does God view men and women? How does God view marriage? Well, go to the beginning. What did God establish? But if you look at our culture today, 
This is a picture that is laughable to them. You look at the non-believing world, and they look at this, this setup, and they think male chauvinism. They think that, that, that in this type of setup, women are, are, are back in the shadows, and they're just a helper, and they're insignificant, and they're not valuable, and they're not honored. And, 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 and so this is how the culture views the Genesis account of creation. It's laughable to them. It's laughable to them for, for a lot of reasons. They, they believe the earth is, is, is billions of years old, and the picture in Genesis gives a picture that, that the earth was created in six days. Seven days, and God rested on the seventh, seventh day. So six days of creation. They think, that's just an archaic book. There's no way. Science proves that, the, that, 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 you know, the earth couldn't have been created in six days. It's billions of years old. And so they laugh at that. And then they laugh at this idea of the roles of men and women. And they look at the biblical view, and it runs contrary to, to what they see. Our culture today is trying to remove any kind of gender-specific roles. There is no longer, no longer a celebration over how God naturally created men and women to function. It's gone in our culture. And, it's, and we're fighting to keep that in the church. We are so influenced by our culture. We're so influenced by our culture in the issue of gender roles and how men and women should function. There are, there, there are so, there's so, so-called Christian speakers and, and women speakers and, and men speakers in churches that, that, that are out there and they look just like the culture and they talk just like the culture around the issue of gender roles. And it doesn't line up with what the Bible teaches about gender roles. And so our culture has influenced us. And so the attacks in, in, in this area are really an attack on the biblical view of men and women and the account we see in, in Genesis you know, and a, an example of this, as I was preparing and thinking about this message, I was on the way to work. And anybody listen to NPR radio? You don't have to admit that because they're a very liberal, <laughs> they're a very liberal radio station. But I like to listen to them because they're liberal. And uh, I'm conservative. I have conservative principles and values. But I like to pay attention to what the liberal people say. And so as I'm driving to work on Tuesday, Monday or Tuesday, they, one of the news stories was that the Boy Scouts of America, which have progressively become more and more liberal, they just released an announcement, released a statement and said that they were no longer going to require that boys submit a birth certificate to join the Boy Scouts. That anybody could join, even if they were a girl, as long as they checked boy on the application, if they identified as a boy, they could be a part of the Boy Scouts. Isn't that ridiculous? I mean, I mean we, we've been seeing this issue with the whole gender issue of the, of the bathrooms, but this is just another example of how far we've come and the attacks from our culture that, that are trying to do away with the uniqueness of men and women and how God designed them. And so we can't take those attacks lightly. It, it, it is an attack on God himself. It's an attack on who God is. Why, isn't it, why is it an attack on who God is? Because in Genesis, what we just read was, was that we are both, male and female, made in the image of God. So when our roles are attacked, our gender roles are attacked, it's not, it's not just an attack that we can say, well, that's really no big deal. It's not just something we cannot address as the church. We have to address it because, because if we're not careful, we can slowly allow those things to to, to come into, in, into the church and infiltrate our thinking 
And we can begin to believe things that are not true about who men are to be and who women are to be. God's plan for, women, for men and women, as described in Scripture, is the model that best encourages human flourishing. Now, now, now that's, you know, obviously this topic can go into many different areas, but I had to kind of set this foundation. But as we move into 1 Timothy, this picture of gender roles, as we see established in Genesis, influences and is the foundation with which we build from the view of what Paul is going to address in the church. And so we can't lose sight of Genesis, and I want to make sure that we don't lose sight. We're going to come back to Genesis here. But as we move to 1 Timothy chapter 2, we are studying a portion of Scripture that is one of the most controversial portions in all of the New Testament. But it is only controversial, hear me, it's only controversial because of the relentless influence of our culture around the subject of gender roles. So here's what we cannot do. We cannot take the cultural view of gender roles and hold it up to Scripture and then ask Scripture to conform to it. It has to be the other way around. has to be the other way. That's if we really believe the Bible is divinely inspired. We have to start with the understanding of gender roles from an equal value position. Based on the Genesis account, because we're both creating God's image. And based on the New Testament position found in Galatians 3. Let's read Galatians 3. 23 through 29. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. You know, no matter where, if you're from America, you're from the UK, you're from Albania, you're from wherever, there's no, there's no nationality. We're all in one in Christ. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So those are the two pictures that we look at gender roles with, is that we are equal in value because we're created in God's image, and under the, under the banner of the cross and, 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 and through the blood of Jesus, we are also equal. We're on equal playing, found, equal playing ground spiritually because of who we are in Christ and because we're created in God's image. But there is a difference between our roles and our function in the local church, and this is what Timothy is dealing with. So just before we get into these controversial scriptures. Let's read 1 Timothy 3. This is what I read last week. 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 15. Just to remind us of why Paul wrote this letter. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So why is Paul addressing the church in Ephesus? You, you, you can talk to me. Why is he addressing the church? From just what we just read? So they can learn how to behave. Learn how to act. Be, behaving is, you know, is, is, is your action. So he's telling them, this is how you're to act in the church. This is, these are going to be your roles and these are going to be your responsibilities. And I'm going to set those in order. And so now, in view of that, let's read 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. And then we'll unpack these verses. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. 
Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing (laughs) if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So all the women are going to heaven apparently, right? I mean, we we don't get to go to heaven, guys. We're out of luck. (laughs) So is this for who in here? This is the first time you've heard some of these scriptures. Right. Okay, you got one. It's it's okay. Is there is there anybody else kind of news to you? Yeah. It's some challenging scriptures, right? What do we think about that? You know, so as I thought about it, um, first of all, I fussed Pastor Renee as much as you can fuss your boss. I was like, you're going to leave me that, aren't you? You're going to leave me that section, you dirty dog. And so he didn't give me any help. I look back at his notes. He taught, he taught this section in 1996. So t- today as I'm finishing up my notes, I thought, oh, let me go back and get these notes because we keep them in a storage closet back here that Miss Bessie and some other people in the church, they... they they write down all the notes to keep him in binders. So he got notes all the way back from the early 80s, handwritten notes that he's preached from. So went and got it from 96. I'm looking through the section, and he didn't even talk about it. I was like, thanks. You didn't help me before you left, and you didn't help me in 1996. So great, I'm on my own. Here we go. So do you, do you understand why I laid this foundation? Because it's, it's challenging. But you know what? God's word is good. And God's word is true. Later on in, in Timothy, we're, we're going to read that, that God's word is divinely inspired. And it's profitable for reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished for every good work. And so it is divinely inspired. So there's, there's answers. So let's, let's find some answers tonight. Through the lens of Genesis, the created order of gender roles. Amen. So in, in, in these Verses, I see six admonitions from the Apostle Paul for the church. And the first one is obvious. Verse 8. And it would be this, that God has given men the role of spiritual leadership. God has given men the role of spiritual leadership. And this is a, an easy one to understand here. So let's look at verse 8. It says, I desire that in every place that the men should pray. And that word men right there is gender specific. It's not the word for man or mankind. It's a gender specific word. So in the context of the local church, I I desire that men should pray. So for me, that's an easy scripture there. Men, we're called to be spiritual leaders in, in the church, obviously in the home. In the home, we're called just like Adam was given the responsibility to 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 guard the first commandment from God that was given to him. To be the spiritual leader in, in his home. When we come to church, men, this is not your day off on Sundays and Wednesdays. It's not your day off to sit and just listen to the pastor be the spiritual leader. You're called to be the spiritual leaders in the church. So that means that when you come to church, men, you come looking to be an example to others in the church. So that means when, you, when, when you're here during the music time, you're called to be an example to your children that are watching you. You're called to be an example to other younger men that are looking at you, other men that are there. We're called to lead the church 
spiritually. We're called to be examples, pillars in the church of truth and righteousness and holiness. Truth and righteousness and holiness. So looking back in, in the account of Genesis, we see that God created man first and gave him instructions about how he should live in the world that God created for him. And we, we, we read this earlier uh, in Genesis, so I won't, I won't read it a second time, but God gave Adam the first commandment. Men were designed from the beginning to be the carriers of God's truth and the ones entrusted to instruct and lead their families in that truth. And so Paul is saying in this verse that it is good and desirable for men in the church to be spiritual leaders. Men, men, we should not abdicate that responsibility in the church to the women. We should not come to church and say, you know, well, my wife's going to be the one that's going to worship. It's going to be the one that's going to seek to be a spiritual leader to people in the church. When, when you walk through that door... When you walk through the door, you come with the view of responsibility that I am here to serve the body of Christ. I'm here to be an example. I'm here to be an encourager because God has called us to do that. Men, we should, we should be prayers. We should be men of prayer when we come here. You know, it's such a great opportunity for us. You know, like during our prayer time, you know, we've designated prayer counselors to come up front to pray for people. So as people come up, you know, during the Sunday morning time, it can be a lot longer than on Wednesdays and maybe 10, 15 minutes we're praying for people. But I encourage you men, as you're out there in the, in the crowd watching this happen, stand up. Stand up. Stand, stand up. Stand up out of honor and respect for those that have come and are seeking God for prayer and pray for them. You, you may not be a prayer counselor, but you can be a prayer in your seat. And be interceding for them that are up there. Lead in that way. Carry that burden as a spiritual leader in the house of God. And you know what? There's such an incredible opportunity that, that we have that when we're doing that, we're setting examples to the younger men. You know, guys, the younger guys are watching us. Our children, not, not just our children are watching us, but there are, there are other young men that, that, that watch us lead. Watch who we are. Watch how we respond in worship. Watch how we respond to the word of God. Our, our men in church, are we on the edge of our seat, listening, paying attention, engaging in what's being said? Those are all things that can be modeled and be seen by other men in the church, by younger men in the church. So men, we are called to be spiritual leaders. Men should not abdicate their responsibility to lead spiritually in the church to their wives or to other women in the church. And, you know, this happens so much. It happens so much in churches. You know, I think if you talk to pastors all around this country, they would tell you that, that there's a struggle to get men to rise up and to be spiritual leaders in the church. It's, it's, but, man, you, you, you call a Bible study for women, I mean, you get the place packed out with the women. But it's difficult. And you know why I think it's difficult? Because the devil knows the power of a, of a spiritually mature man. The devil knows the power of what can happen when a man rises up with courage and with conviction and says, I'm going to lead my wife, I'm going to lead my children, and I'm going to be a spiritual pillar and foundation in the church that I attend. When that happens, boy, I, I'm telling you, you want to see Living Word Church explode at the seams, you guys want to see that? You guys want to see the church explode? Man, as, as, as our men rise up and take the responsibility to lead, and as pastors, we're encouraging them in, in that, man, the men in this church are going to be evangelists. 
They're going to be men that, that go out on their jobs. They're going to be witnessing to their family and their friends. And, and this place is going to be growing like we've never seen it. But it starts with the men. That's the created order. Men are called to be leaders. That's how God made us. What's the second encouragement, second admonition? So that, that, that's, that's, that's an obvious one. Well, here's another obvious one. Let's go back to, to verse 8. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or, or quarreling. So the first area is that they should pray, be spiritual leaders. But how should they lead? By lifting holy hands. So what, what, what does that mean, by lifting holy hands? The second admonition is this, that God has given men the responsibility to model a life, to model a holy life marked by purity. Men, you can't be, spiritually, can't be spiritual leaders unless you live a holy life. That's marked by purity. Lifting holy hands. What does that mean to lift holy hands? The first qualification for men is to be spiritual leaders. First qualification for men to be spiritual leaders is that they would lift holy hands. So what are holy hands? What do you think? What does that signify? What do holy hands signify? Say it again. Submission. Yeah. Surrender. Adoration. Anything else? Right? Still waiting on something? Well, you're getting close right there, but that's, that, that's good. Righteousness. That's exactly right. Righteousness. It's, it's a picture. You know, are, are, are hands holy in and of themselves? Nah, it's just a hand. Got flesh and they can get dirty on them. You can get dirt on them and it's just, they're just hands. It's, it's a picture. Holy hands. I desire that all men, that men would pray in the church, but that they would pray in righteousness and in holiness. And so, Psalm 24, verses 3 through 4, is, is a picture of, of what this symbol is. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands. If you have clean hands, it's because you have a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. Holy hands, and, or clean hands, are a way to describe a pure heart. The word holy means unpolluted or unstained by evil unpolluted or unstained by evil and your hands symbolize the activities of your life it's what you do so what this means is for men to have holy hands is that holy hands represent a holy life a pure life so men guard what you look at guard what you do guard where you go you can't lead spiritually you abdic- you will abdicate your spiritual responsibility to lead if you if you're not living a holy life you can't lead spiritually if you're pursuing things that are not holy, that are not right, if the desires of your heart are mixed with the things of God and the things of this world. So, so man, my encouragement as a fellow man is that we would together pursue holiness, pursue righteousness, pursue the things that honor God so that whenever we do stand in the church, we can lift holy hands and we have no shame or no guilt and we can, with a pure conscience, worship our God with sincerity, lifting holy hands. The men in our church are called to spiritual leadership that is marked by a life that is unstained by evil. And so let, let's move on. So th- those are two easy ones here. And, here's, and, and now we're going to move to the women here. And this is a real obvious one here. Uh, let's read verses 9 through, 9 through 10 of 1 Timothy 2. It says, likewise, moving on now that we're done talking about the men, likewise, in, in the same way, 
Also, let, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And so Paul is, again, this is the context of the local church. So when, 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 when men come to church, obviously men don't wear short shorts. <laughs> And, 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 and don't wear shirts that are so skin tight that, that you, you know, you, you got to be peeled out of the shirt. You know, right? Just, uh, you know, I guess modesty issues can be similar. You know, it can, be, it can cross over to men as well. But it's not quite as common with men. Uh, I don't think women are freaking out over men's short shorts. I think they're more grossed out over something like that. Um, so, so it's not really a modesty issue for the men. But just like the men should come and lift holy hands and be pure and walk in holiness. Well, women for you, there's a specific temptation that women have. It's in the area of modesty. And so it's easy for a woman to come into a place of public and into church and want to get the attention of men based upon how they look on the outside and be affirmed by the outward appearance. You know, I've been married for 13 years and I know what women are like. (laughs) I didn't know before, but I know now. That a woman has a drive to want to be told that she's beautiful. To want to be told that she looks good to her husband. That she is valuable. Not just, not just for who she is on the outside, but who she is on the inside. Just the whole package. They, they, they want to know that people value them for who they are. And the outward appearance is such an important thing for a woman. That's why when, you're, when your wife gets dressed and she's looking in the mirror and she doesn't really like how it looks and she asks you what you think, she's asking you what you think because she wants to know, do I look good? Do you think I look good? It's such an important aspect of a woman's life. And so women, when you come to church, don't be looking for that for men at church. It's not the place for that. It's not the place to come and attract attention for the wrong reasons. And that's what, that's what Paul is saying here. This is, church is not a place for women to come and wear disrespectful apparel. You should adorn yourself with respectful apparel, with modesty and self-control. How many of you men have ever been in a church service and a woman has come in and has been dressed in an immodest way? And, and, you, and you've noticed it. Every man, raise your hand. <laughs> You're acting like maybe you didn't, but it's true. I've seen it. And you're just conflicted. You're like, oh, my goodness. I'm in a holy place here. I should not have to be dealing with this. Because, <laughs> men, what are we like? We are visual beings. God created us to be aroused visually by things. And so it should not be a place. It should not be a place where we have to deal with that. So Paul is saying, so obviously there's something going on in this church where the women were not dressing in a, in a modest way. Now, modesty then, I guarantee you, is different than modesty now. You know, maybe their, maybe their robes were a little, just above their ankle a little bit. And so Paul was like, all right, ladies, and you go down, go, go all the way down. And those ankles are a little bit too much. But for us, there's just different things going on. So, so women, what, what's the spirit of, the, of what he's saying there? Be mindful of your brothers in Christ and don't cause your brother to stumble in that area. So the second, the first area, admission for women in this area is modesty. The second area is the costly apparel. So when it talks here, it says, um, it says, and, and also, and not with braided hair and gold or pearls of costly attire. You know, there's whole denominations that make rules based upon that scripture and say that women can't wear jewelry and say, well, you can't wear jewelry because this scripture says you can't have braided hair with gold and pearls or costly attire. 
you know, in that culture and in that time, it was common in the first century for women to braid their hair and braid in it, put in it, put in the braided hair gold and pearls and jewelry. And it was a symbol of their wealth. It was a symbol that they were a part of the elite status in their society and in their culture. And so the second area that Paul is addressing with women is saying, when you come into the church, dress modestly and don't dress in a way that that makes anybody else feel like they are less than you or lower than you because of how you look on the outside. And basically, the the spirit of that is don't treat others when you come to the church, women and men, don't treat others like you are better than them. Because the spirit of Galatians 3 that we read earlier is that there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ and at the, at the cross, the field is level. The ground is level. We all come at the foot of the cross in desperate need of, his, of God's help, right? So that is no place in the church for status in that area. And so... Paul focuses on two aspects of a woman's appearance, modesty and her image. 1 Peter 3, 3 through 4, I think, further illustrates this and gets to the heart of what even Paul is saying here. This is speaking to women. It says, do, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. You know what God's saying there? Women, your value is not based upon how you look. And what does our culture tell you, women? Your value is on exactly how you look. How you look directly correlates with your value. And women believe that. And God bless our our young girls that are hearing the messages, those types of messages, that they are valuable because how skinny they are, because of how pretty they are, the attention they get from boys, that's what they're thinking makes them valuable. But none of that makes a woman valuable. A woman is valuable. Why why is a woman valuable according to Genesis? They're made in God's image. And after his likeness, they're inherently valuable because they belong to God and they're made in his image. And so women, my encouragement to you this evening is that know your value and don't give in to the lies of the culture that would want you to believe that you have to present yourself in a way that would get attention from men or other people because of how you look, because you want to look a certain way and that's going to make you valuable. You're valuable because of who you are on the inside, because of how God made you, because, because of your heart, because of your, your inward beauty. You, you guys ever met a person, whether I guess a, a woman or a man, who they, they look good on the outside, they have it all together. Just We're talking about women, so just... A knockout gorgeous woman. She looks, what the culture would say is the image of beauty. But inwardly, she's horrible. She's like mean. You wouldn't want to be around her. She's a gossip. She's angry. She, she's just words I can't say at church, right? You know, just like, and so no one wants to be around her. Because she's got the whole idea backwards. She thinks her value is based upon her looks. Your value is based upon who you are on the inside and who you belong to and who your creator is. Amen? So Paul is saying in the church, that needs to be the understanding. And so now that's for, so women, that's your, that's, that's your responsibility that when you come into church that you would view that, that, that as your responsibility 
to not cause your brother to stumble and to, to not create there this issue of class within the church, that we are all equal. And so moving on to 1 Timothy 2, 11, says in verse 11, it says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, submissiveness. And so the fourth encouragement here, the fourth admonition for Paul to the church and specifically to women would be this, that women, your role, God has given women the role of submission and support. God's given the role of submission and support to women in the church. Now, we must keep in mind that, obviously, Paul is speaking to to the church here. And if we look back at Genesis 2.18, what does it say here? Let's go back to Genesis 2.18. It says, In the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so this is a this is where the role this is where the picture of submission comes from. And this is difficult for women because again because of the cultural view of submission that's one reason why it's difficult. And then another reason why this view of your role of submission is difficult because of a lot of difficult men. Because of male chauvinism because of 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 a view that men have have had for centuries of women towards women that the women are are called to come and walk behind them. And that they're not of equal value and equal standing. And so men treat women like they are subservient and less than them. And they, and they, be, be, they belittle women. They belittle their, their wives. And they treat them like dirt. And so because of that, whenever through that cultural lens, and we see that the Bible says that women should be submissive and that, and that women are called a helper, it's hard to hear that. It's hard for women to hear that. You know, if the, the women... If we had this room full of the women that were at that, that woman's march just recently, <laughs> man, I'd be, th- I'd, 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 might be dead right now. <laughs> they might be like, you need to stone that guy. He, this is crazy, right? A helper? I'm a helper? I need to submit? It's because of their view of gender roles. They have it backwards. And so this word helper is such a unique word. When you say that word helper out, Genesis 2.18, it's not good that man would be alone why because the man by himself is no good and i will make him a helper that word helper is the same word that is used to describe god himself as he is described as our helper the holy spirit so women that word helper is a word of amazing value and meaning and purpose. So to be called a helper, to be described just like God is described, means that you have such a great position of honor. God is giving you a position of honor in that role as a helper to your husband. And so it's not a position of less than, and and men are greater than. It's a position of honor and value. The word helper is the same word used to describe God himself. The role as, this role as helper or helpmate is a role of honor and significance and a, and a role of submission. And that phrase fit for him, that phrase fit for him, a, a helper fit for him, gives us a picture of a complementary role. So, you know, you know, again, in the context of marriage, this is what it would look like. So with me and my wife, Estelle is a saver and I am a spender. I like to shop. I like to buy shoes. Okay, I know you, you guys like my shoes. I love shoes. I probably have about 25 pairs of shoes. Guys, don't rag me. <laughs> but approximately 20 to 25. I haven't counted lately. I like to buy shoes. I'm a spender. I like, I like them. And so my wife doesn't like to spend money. <laughs> I have to help her with spending money. 
I have to remind her that you only live once. <laughs> and it's okay to spend money and buy ice cream and, and go places and shop. It's good. And so if, if she was a spender, like I was, and liked shoes as much as I do, I have more shoes than she does, and she likes as much shoes as much as I do, we'd be broke. We wouldn't be living in, in the house we're living in. We, are, you know, we wouldn't be, be blessed as we are now because we would all constantly be struggling with finances. But she is a helper fit for me. When God, before the creation of the world, designed me, designed a plan for my life, he looked down into the future and, and said, Ben needs a specific type of woman to help him to fulfill the purpose I'm calling him for. And I'm going to give him a helper fit for him that will come alongside him and they will work together in fulfilling that calling and that purpose. And he specifically designed Estelle for that role. And it's a beautiful picture of a woman that has value and honor and purpose and meaning as a helper. And if I do my job correctly as a great spiritual leader and I'm not overbearing and domineering and a chauvinist, then my wife thrives in that role. And she doesn't, she doesn't, women, women will not, will not try to pull off the restraints of submission when they're, when they're submitted to a servant leader of a husband. When they're submitted to a man in the church, leaders in the church that are servant leaders, that don't talk down to women, that, that, that look at women in the eye and value who God made women to be as equal heirs, co-heirs of eternal life. You, you, you know, men, we have a responsibility to treat women, not just our wives correctly, but all women. Women in the church, we're called to treat them with respect. We're not better than women. We are co-heirs with them in the grace of life and in, in, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and, we are, and we are co-image bearers with women. Women are equal with us. Different roles, different responsibilities, but equal in the sight of God and equal according to the blood of Jesus. So that word helper, that word, that, that role of submission is a role that is a valuable role. Fit for him. Give us, it gives us the picture of a complementary role. And so fifthly, as we go into this next section of scripture, this is a difficult one that is, is a challenging one. But I, I, I believe based upon these scriptures and this view that we've been looking at, I believe there's a good answer for it. First Timothy 2, 12 through 14 says this. It says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So you just read that and you think, wait a minute. So Paul's saying in the context of the local church, women can't preach and teach. What is he saying there? But the key to this is the phrase, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So what's the created order? When we look back at Genesis, what's the created order? Who, who was created first? Adam and then Eve. Who did God give the commandment to first? God gave the first commandment that he ever gave to any human being was a, was, was a man, was to Adam. So God called men to uniquely guard and be the guardians of divine truth. This is the first divine truth ever entrusted to anybody. And God entrusted it to a man. Now, of course, the first man abdicated his responsibility and did not did not teach his wife very, very well, and she was deceived. And this is, this is the argument that he makes. So he says, women should not have authority over, a, a man, over men in the church and should not be the ones that are the teachers in the church because that's the man's responsibility. And his argument is in the created order. He brings it right back to Scripture. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived. 
But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So the argument, again, we started with Genesis. The argument Paul gives is because of Genesis, because of who God created the men to be. So is there anything wrong with a woman teaching and preaching? Of course not. There are, there, there are, you, can, you can go through a list of great gifted women in the body of Christ around the world that can teach and preach better than some of the men. You guys ever heard a boring man preach? Just like, oh, my gosh, needs to give it up, right? And, you, you know, you can have a woman get up and preach, and it's like just amazing. It's an amazing gift that God's given them. Where did that gift come from? It came from God. It came from God for them to preach and to teach. That's a gift that God gives women. It's valuable. But in the context of the local church, Paul is saying that in this, in this structure, just like in the home, men are responsible to teach their wives and their kids. It's the same order within the church. Men are responsible to be spiritual leaders. So the, the picture is this, that the designated pastors and teachers, those that are the called out ones to be pastors and teachers, are the, are the ones are, should be men, and they, those are the ones who should teach and preach God's word as a designated authority, just like in Genesis, just, to, just like we see in the picture of Genesis. So I failed to tell you my, my fifth point. My fifth point is this. God has given, based upon what we just read, qualified men the role and responsibility to lead the church in preaching and teaching. God's given qualified men. And so why, why, why do I say qualified men? Well, here's the... Here's the text that demonstrates that it should be a qualified man. Pastor Renee will cover this next week. This is 1 Timothy 3. Let's go to 1 Timothy 3. This is the very, the very next section. Wait a second. We got mixture there. Shows us. Okay. This saying is trustworthy and true. That's where it starts. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, that word overseer, some of your translations may say elder. Some of them may say pastor. The word overseer, elder, or pastor is interchangeable in the New Testament language, and it means the same thing. So those that are called to be elders, overseers, or pastors, it's the same meaning. Let's go back to the text. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires, desires the office of a pastor or or an overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife. Does it say the wife of one husband? You know, it, it could say that. It, it, it could, but this is what we're working with. This is, the, the, there's, this is the scriptural text that gives the qualifications for pastors, those that are the designated leaders and authority in the church. This is the, the text in the entire Bible that signifies who they should be and what their qualifications are. And the first qualification is that they should be above reproach, that they should have holy hands, that they should live a pure life. And then the next qualification is that they should be the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. They're to be the teachers, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Who's called to care for God's church? The, 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 the men in the church that are the qualified men to be pastors and teachers. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders 
so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So from my view of Scripture, based upon what we see here, men are called to be the, the, the primary preachers and teachers within the context of the local church. Now, there are some theories that are out there that, that I read in different commentaries and different scholars. And this, this can, I cannot say this with complete clarity here and and i don't know if this is true but this is a possibility you know there was false teaching that had gotten into this church and we we know that to be true timothy addresses paul addresses the false teaching so there's an idea out there that the reason paul emphasized the women to be quiet and 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 shifted the focus to who he wanted to be teachers which is the spiritual leaders the 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 men in the church the qualified men is because the false teachers had, had 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 gotten access to women in the church, and that these women were spreading false teaching amongst the church with the false teachers. And so Paul is possibly setting that in order and saying, no, these women who are, who are working with these false teachers, you need to know, listen, church at Ephesus, I have established, according to, according to what I'm about to tell you in First Timothy 3 in this next section, that it is qualified men that are the ones that I've called, that God has called to be the leaders in the church, to be the spiritual leaders, and to be the ones who teach in the church. So that's the order that God has established. Paul's argument is based on the created order and the gender roles that God established. This is not a command based on the inferiority of women. It is rather a command based upon God's design. Paul is simply saying that men are called to be the primary preachers and teachers and leaders of the local church. Throughout Scripture, God has given women, though, a prominent role in spiritual influence. I mean, if you just do a study on prominent women in the Bible, it is amazing to see the number of women that God has used to spiritually influence people in Scripture. And and then Jesus, if you look at the Gospels, Jesus elevated the low view of women in the first century by continually interacting with them throughout the Gospels. You just you just look. Even one one example of that is the woman at the well. You guys know that story? She was a Samaritan woman. And first of all, Jews would have never interacted with Samaritans, much less a woman. A man wouldn't have gone and talked to a woman like that in public. But at the well, a place where, where the public would come, the Jews would come to gather water, Jesus went and talked to, the, to, to, to this woman, and he elevated her value based upon the reality that all are created in God's image. And so that, that's... That's, that's the fifth point there, that God has called men, qualified men, to be the primary pre- preachers and teachers in the local church. And then finally, lastly, this last section about childbearing. 1 Timothy 2.15. You, you guys with me? I'm almost done. I know I'm a little bit past time here. Just hang on. Just about, I'm about to wrap up. 1 Timothy 2.15 says, Yet she will be saved through childbearing. So this, this woman who was deceived, Eve in the beginning, who was deceived and led her, led her husband spiritually into a direction of sin, Paul is saying she's going to be saved through childbearing. So what does that mean, saved through childbearing? Does it really mean saved through childbearing? I think there's two primary ideas that, that this could mean. The first one could mean when you go back to the book of Genesis, after the fall, the curse that is given when God is talking to Eve, what does God tell Eve? It says, you're going to desire to rule over your husband. But he's going to have authority over you. And then it also says, God tells her, says, but, but you are going to bruise the heel. Your seed, through your seed, that, the, 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 your seed will bruise the heel of, 
of Satan. And so that, that could be a picture of what is being said there, that, that women will be saved through childbearing, that, that through the seed of women, the seed of a woman, Mary, comes the Messiah that brings salvation to the entire world, elevating the, the significance of women. But the more likely picture here, that the one that I, I, I want to focus on, is this, is that I, I believe it's speaking, because that word saved there, saved through childbearing, that word saved is not a, is not a salvific term. It's not the same word that's used when it talks about us being born again. It's, it's, a, it's a different word. And so the picture there is that women have been given a unique opportunity and privilege of rearing godly children. A unique opportunity and privilege with their children to raise them to honor God and to seek God. And so it's like God is saying, yeah, in the beginning, the woman was deceived and she was, and she was, she was not led properly by her husband and she was she was deceived and she, she tried to ab- abdicate the authority of her husband. But for the rest of history, I'm going to give women the opportunity to raise godly children. And if you know, I mean, I know this as a father. As much as I would like it to not be true, my wife spends more time with my kids than I ever will. And the reason for that is, is because of our work schedules. The majority of men, I, I, you know, of course, women and men both work nowadays uh, more and more. And it's very common. But generally speaking, women have a lot more quality time with their children than men do. And, you know, whenever, whenever a sports star scores a touchdown or he's won the Super Bowl, who does he talk to on TV? Talks to his mom. Women, you, mothers, you have a great impact on your children. And, you, you, you know, the father's out there. He spent all the time throwing catch, playing catch with the son and investing in his life and all of that. And they're thanking the mother. Because there's a unique bond that is there between a mother and a child. God's given them a unique opportunity to, to raise godly children that will champion the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this is a picture. That's what the picture is. It's, it's a picture of a unique opportunity that women have to influence the next generation through raising kids. And then specifically to those that are, are not mothers here, that are single. Within the church, women, you have a unique opportunity to pour into younger women in the church. So you may never have biological children, but you can still pour into other women in your life, other younger women in the life of, of the church. And so I know it's a, it's a difficult passage, and it's, it's a difficult passage primarily because of the cultural view of gender roles. But I, w- I would like to conclude with reading a, a long ex- excerpt, excerpt, excerpt from a book uh, called 12 Extraordinary Women. And so it's about three paragraphs, if you will hang tight, and we're going to end with this. But I, I think these paragraphs really summarize for us what's happening in our culture in the view of gender roles and the beauty and the wonder of who a woman is and what God has made her to be. It says, I, I contend that women are used and abused more today than at any time in history. Pornography turns women into objects and victims of dirty, cowardly, peeping toms who leer at them with greedy eyes. Throughout the world, women are traded like animals for sexual slavery. In more civilized places, men routinely use women for no consequence and no commitment sex, only to leave them pregnant without care and support. Abortion rights groups aid and abet male selfishness and irresponsibility and they free women free women to murder their unborn children women are left alone 
emotionally scarred, financially destitute, and experientially guilty, ashamed, and abandoned. Where's the freedom, the dignity, and the honor in that? Even when secular movements have arisen claiming to be concerned with women's rights, their efforts have generally been detrimental to the status of women. The feminist movement of our generation, for example, is a case in point. Feminism has devalued and defamed femininity. Natural gender distinctions are usually downplayed, dismissed, despised, or denied. As a result, women are now being sent into combat situations, subjected to grueling physical labor once reserved for men, exposed to all kinds of indignities in the workplace, and otherwise encouraged to act and talk like men. Meanwhile, modern feminists heap scorn on women who want family and household to be their first priorities. In so doing, they disparage the role of motherhood, the one calling that is most uniquely and exclusively feminine. The whole message of feminist egalitarianism is that there is really nothing extraordinary about women. That is certainly not the message of Scripture. Scripture honors women as women, and it encourages them to seek honor in a uniquely feminine way. Scripture never discounts the female intellect or downplays the talents and abilities of women or discourages the right use of women's spiritual gifts. But whenever the Bible expressly talks about the marks of an excellent woman, the stress is always on feminine virtue. The most significant women in Scripture were influential not because of their careers, but because of their character. Amen? Amen. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of your word. And God, God, when our, when our word, when your word comes in and we hear it and it comes in contrast to maybe the influences that we have been exposed to in our culture. Lord, may we submit and surrender to the truth of your word. God, when, when our hearts have a hard time with truths, God, may we remember that your word is good, that your ways are good. And God, as, as, as men in the church, God, may we be good men. May we be men that are spiritual leaders with holy hands. May we be men that serve women well, that honor them, that, that esteem them, that value who they are and who God has made them to be. God, may you raise up more and more women, God, to be spokesmen and, 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 and teachers, Lord, of your word. And God, may you raise up more men, God, that would champion your truth. And God, may we do it in the way that you've designed in Scripture. May we not rebel against what your word says. May we have hearts that are submitted to your ways. And as a result of us following your order and following your ways and being countercultural, God, may what we do here in the church be an example to the world of something that is different, but something that is good and something that is, in, that, 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 that is used to encourage family and family values and and things that are good for the family, good for the home. God, we submit to you and we honor you. We thank you for what you're doing in our church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God, God bless you. I'll see you all on Sunday.